Hi, boys and girls. Like you, Santa is listening to the Merry Little Podcast of MyMerryChristmas.com. Merry Christmas and welcome to another episode of the Merry Little Podcast of MyMerryChristmas.com. My name is Jeff Westover, founder of The Feast at My Merry Christmas and fan of the Christmas Countdown at the Merry Forums of My Merry Christmas, our little gathering place for the Christmas community online where we celebrate the season 365 days of the year. In 2021, we are celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. Quite an accomplishment, if we do say so ourselves. We have grown from conversations started by a fax machine that spread worldwide in the early 1990s, and then through this crazy new thing called the Internet, and that conversation has just never stopped. We continue that conversation in this episode, where we enjoy the second in our series of podcasts on Christmas of the 20th century. Here then, for one night only, each home throughout the English-speaking world should be a brightly lighted island of happiness and peace. Let the children have their night of fun and laughter. Let the gifts of Father Christmas delight their play. Where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear in the snow. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. We derive new strength, new courage for our work from the spirit of Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Christmas has two S's in it, and they're both dollar signs. Therefore, the Post Office Department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus. And I want to look him straight in the eye, and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, hopeless, heartless, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of hallelujah! Where's the Tylenol? The world is a snowball, see how it grows, that's how it goes. Whenever it snows, the world is your snowball just for a song. All over the world, they celebrate the birth of that baby. And everybody gets time warp and wait. Now, if that ain't proof that he's the son of God, then nothing is. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Fragile. It must be Italian. Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight?
It is tempting to look at the decade of the years between 1910 and 1920 and just call it a decade where everything changed. The point is that the world did change, transportation changed, technology changed, culture changed, and of course Christmas changed. But the 20th century frankly saw such change over the course of nearly every 10-year period. Christmas in 1910 was a time when people flocked to the churches. Sending Christmas cards was popular. Bringing in a fresh tree from nature was a thing in areas where trees could be cut down, while in urban areas, well, they would have cut trees imported by the thousands. Christmas 1910 was a time where clinging to the Victorian-era celebrations of the holidays meant parlor games like kissing under the mistletoe, and, if you were a kid, finding the biggest sock in the house to hang on your chimney. You could call it a simpler time. Most folks were still using horse and buggy transportation for their personal needs, and maybe taking the train if they had to travel at a distance. Christmas movies were available if you didn't mind silent films, and Christmas music was performed live and shared via sheet music for the most part. While Christmas lights were available and becoming cheaper with each passing year, most homes still did not have electricity. If you wanted lights on your tree in 1910, you had to power them by battery. It was a time when the newspapers featured both announcements of what Christmas would be like at church and then reported exactly what happened after it was all over. Gift giving was definitely in fashion, but Christmas buying typically didn't begin until about two weeks before Christmas and the store stayed open then until the scandalous hour of 8 p.m. You could say it was a different Christmas from a different America and a different Great Britain just 10 years later. By the time the decade was over, the world had suffered a world war and a global pandemic. Automobiles were mass-produced, and getting a new one could get your name in the local paper. Also mass-produced were talking machines that could now play recorded music on flat discs called records, and radio had emerged from the First World War as a commercial product. Christmas and technology changed just as quickly. Christmas clubs, mistletoe, and religious Christmas observance gave way to the all-electric national Christmas tree, model trains as Christmas gifts and Christmas decorations, and a new era called Prohibition, dawn that made celebrating Christmas very different. And all the detail of this change, both the culture and Christmas associated with it, are stories that are worth noting from this important decade. What would it be like to take a person from 1910 and put them in our world here in the 21st century? And what would we do if we could go back and see and experience the world as they knew it then? Is such a snapshot possible? Well, we think it is. You just need the right people in the right places at the right time with the right talent to take that picture. And that's how our discussion of the years of the second decade of the 20th century begins, with the man who had that talent who emerged during this dynamic decade. He was born in New York City in the mid-1890s with a rich American heritage that dates back to the earliest Puritan settlers in Connecticut. As a boy, it was his dream to be an artist. In 1910, he left high school and enrolled in the New York School of Art. 
His first commissioned work was to produce four Christmas card designs before his 16th birthday. That led to more opportunities that were unusual for someone so young. While still a teen, he was hired as the art director of Boy's Life, the official magazine of the Boy Scouts of America. That led to still other work he did on the side for other teen-targeted publications. He produced art for Life magazine, St. Nicholas magazine, Literary Digest, and Country Gentleman. In 1916, at the age of 22, he painted his first cover for the Saturday Evening Post. His art was good, but more importantly, his ability to capture in heartwarming ways the Americana he knew and loved as a Yankee made him exceptional. His name was Norman Rockwell. His work with the Saturday Evening Post would pace with U.S. history. He painted about the Charles Lindbergh crossing of the Atlantic in an airplane. He covered both world wars, and he even covered the moon landing. He was popular, but the real art world shunned him for the most part because Rockwell's humor and light touch was his trademark. Over time, Rockwell's paintings helped to find an idealized vision of American life and Christmas celebrations especially. Even now, people seek to emulate the merriment and magic exemplified in Rockwell's imagery. From tired store clerks to a boy discovering Santa kissing his mother to the great American holiday dinner. Rockwell produced 29 covers for the Saturday Evening Post, as well as numerous greeting cards and other holiday scenes for other publications. Rockwell's frequent engagement with Christmas as subject matter was due in part to his important professional relationship with the Saturday Evening Post. What Rockwell did best was to take a snapshot of life, and especially Christmas, in the time it was celebrated, and that is why the Christmas work of Norman Rockwell remains so well regarded and celebrated today. The Mistletoe Bow, heard here in a 1913 recording of the British Male Quartet, was both a song and a ghost story. It refers to a dated story from the 19th century of a bride lost during her wedding day, when a game of hide-and-seek went horribly wrong. The bride hid herself inside of the steamer trunk and could not get out of it. There she languished and died, only to spook the groom and those of the house who lived in it in the decades ahead. 
The song and the poem were a holdover of a time when mistletoe was adopted as a Christmas tradition from ancient druids who saw mistletoe as a miracle plant as it blossomed during winter months when nothing else would grow. They didn't know that mistletoe is a parasitic plant that feasts off the nutrients of the host oak tree, where it grew in the treetops when all else died during the dormant months of winter. Mistletoe became a symbol of love everlasting, and for single Victorians in both the United States and the United Kingdom, its potent love properties were perfect for making a match by the Christmas tree. Newspapers openly mocked girls who refused to be kissed and chided young men who were too afraid to pucker up. But many a couple came together over the years during the holidays when mistletoe was hung from a fixture in the middle of the parlor and those who might find themselves under it would smooch to see if sparks would fly. And for many, it really did. That recording from 1913 was made by Columbia Records, a fledgling company trying to make good on the invention of the talking machine, a technology originally intended more for its recording capabilities than for what it could broadcast in the way of music or speech. What the recording symbolizes is one of the biggest changes in Christmas that came from this decade. Previous to this time, music was heard mostly live, and when it came to Christmas, it was heard mostly in churches. Sound recording and playback by this point had been in the news as an emerging technology for more than 35 years, and yet by 1910, they were still trying to figure out how to record music, especially with large group of musicians such as orchestras and choral groups. A phonograph of this era consisted of a device that played either wax cylinders or flat discs. These early devices featured a large horn that emerged from the top of the machine and took up quite a bit of space in the living room. The horn provided amplification of sound recorded on the cylinders or discs, but it also made an awkward presentation in rooms that were, well, otherwise filled with fine furniture. Plus, to make the cylinders or discs well, it took quite a bit of work, and the sound quality that resulted from that work was seriously lacking. They call this now primitive technology acoustic recording, meaning that the equipment used relied on ambient sound and very loud projection. This is why Christmas recordings between 1910 and 1920 were mostly of individuals or small groups. In trying to figure out how music recording in particular evolved over this decade, I stumbled across a bit of history close to home here in Utah. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir had been established more than 60 years earlier and had gained international fame with their performances at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. But like every large group of musicians, they had no means to record the music that they made. That changed in 1910 thanks to the Columbia Record Company. The largest maker of phonographs was the Victor Company, maker of the popular but somewhat expensive Victrola. Along with the Edison Company in Columbia, these manufacturers of sound machines were also producers of recordings. The Edison Company had an orchestra and quartet, as did Victor. 
but Columbia focused on existing groups and took the recording technology on location, in the case of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, to Salt Lake City, and one of the most acoustically perfect buildings in the world, the Tabernacle on Temple Square, a building dating back to the 1860s. The eggshell design of that iconic structure helped both speakers and singers in the 19th century to be heard at the back of the building without artificial means of amplification. That environment also made it ideal for testing the recording quality of a large group of musicians with the current technology of 1910. The early days of sound recording presented many challenges. The microphone had been invented, but it wasn't yet refined enough for recording music. Instead, artists had to stand in front of a large flared horn that focused sound into an acoustic recording device. This technology worked well for solo artists and solo ensembles, but it made it hard to record large performing groups. Columbia was intent on recording such groups and sought to invent a machine that could record for that purpose. By the fall of 1909, technology had made sufficient progress that the company agreed to record the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the organ there in the Tabernacle on Temple Square. With further development, the company was able to transform a 500-pound recording machine into one that was one-fifth that size, a machine small enough to be transported from New York City to Salt Lake. The final product did not arrive until August 29th of 1910. There were two big problems right off the bat. The organ, which at that time was one of the largest in all the world, presented one set of recording dynamics that would be completely different from those presented by 300 voices crammed together into one space. Figuring out how to record these two entities in Salt Lake City was the job of sound engineer Alexander Hossman of Columbia Records. His greatest challenge was determining where to place the recording machine in the tabernacle so it would record both loud and soft passages clearly. On Tuesday, August 30th, Hausman tested the machine in a number of positions until he found a location that he thought would work best. He and the organist fiddled for hours before settling on a location that would finally work. After several test numbers with the organ playing without anyone in the building, they felt pretty good about their results. But what would happen when they added all those people to the building and the dynamics of recording choral music? Hausman, with the aid of his assistant, spent two hours on Thursday, September 1st, trying to find the best location for the machine's two long recording horns. The local newspaper, called the Deseret Evening News, reports that Hausman finally settled on suspending the two long recording horns across the breadth of the tabernacle, and then having sopranos and altos sing into one horn, then basses and tenors into another. The actual recording began at 8 p.m. At Hausman's request, the women took off their hats, and the 300 singers clustered closely together as they could while facing the horns. Because of the distance of the recording equipment from the organ pipes, the organist had to play the organ at double forte with the singers present. Meanwhile, soloists were arranged, quote, with their faces in one of the bell horns. Their effort paid off after hours of work and trial and error. The Deseret Evening News could not contain their excitement. Quote, what may, without stretch of the imagination, 
be considered the most interesting event in local musical history, occurred Thursday evening in the Tabernacle. It was the successful recording for phonographic reproduction of 12 numbers, sung by the Tabernacle Choir of 300 singers within two hours by expert Haasman of the Columbia Phonographic Company of New York City, unquote. For the choir, the event began a recording career unmatched in American music. But for the emerging technology of music recording, it barely scratched the surface of what was possible and what was surely to come. Over the next 10 years, that technology would improve. But in the meantime, Christmas recordings began to fill store shelves in the variety that would work with the infant audio technology then in American homes. And that was, at that time, a hand-cranked talking machine of limited sound quality. Often, recordings would especially go beyond music, especially at Christmas, with offerings like this. Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When, what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his courses they came and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now, Dasher, now, Dancer, now, Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donder and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now, dash away, dash away, dash away all. <laughs> As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the courses they flew with a sleigh full of toys. And St. Nicholas, too. And then in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry, his droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face, and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. <laughs> he was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings. 
then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. <laughs> the year of that recording is 1914, the same year when World War I broke out and the storied events of the Christmas truce happened. We've told that story before here on the Merry Little Podcast, and you can read endless versions of it online that tell of what transpired between British and German soldiers on the fields of battle. What most people do not realize is that the Christmas truce was reported in nearly real time. Folks of that day learned it from their newspapers. But 1914 was the first year of the war, the first of several Christmases that would mark World War I. That first Christmas at war set the tone for every Christmas during the war. Think of it. That first world war, later called by President Woodrow Wilson, the war to end all wars, was really the first global event that had full media coverage. The newspaper and telegraph capabilities of the time, for the first time ever, brought the savage drama of war from long distances to breakfast tables all over the world. Christmas, nearly everywhere at that time, was frankly a time for peace. It was a time for community charity. The newspapers of that day would report the charitable efforts of clubs, churches, and service organizations that nearly every community had. So when the reality of war collided on Christmas with the traditions of peace and charity, the world took notice, and the world took hope. The Christmas truce inspired everyone in 1914. In fact, to the horror of high command on every side, fraternizing on the battlefield with the enemy became something of a Christmas tradition during the war, and one the military heads on both sides tried to first discourage, then to condemn, and then to hide from the media. But it was simply bad business for the war. But they could not then, and they cannot now, deny the letters that were sent home. British, French, Canadian, German, and even U.S. soldiers are well on record of duplicating the Christmas truce of 1914 for every year during the war in ways both great and small. There are countless stories of gift exchanges, drinking games, Christmas trees, and trinket swaps on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day between the lines. These stories, in some cases, made the local headlines. For months after each Christmas during the war, local newspapers told tales of their homeboys celebrating Christmas with the enemy. This first of the 20th century global event made the world smaller, and it would never go back. From this point forward, the world would never be the same. From this point forward, Christmas more than ever would blend between the societies. It had been happening already for decades, frankly. The Christmas tree, for example, was strictly a German tradition for centuries. Now nearly every country in the world had adopted the practice. Even homes where Christianity was unknown were keen on celebrating Christmas by the tree. But now, newer versions of Christmas were coming into homes worldwide thanks to media capabilities in print and sound. Nothing showcases that better than the emergence of this now familiar tune of Christmas.
1916, a Ukrainian composer by the name of Mykola Leontovich was commissioned to write a song based on Ukrainian folk melodies for a Christmas concert. Using the simple four-note melody, the song told the hopeful story of a swallow flying into a home to proclaim a bountiful new year for the family that lived there. Ukrainian tradition had this song and other similar folk tunes on Christmas and New Year's performed over and over as part of their holiday traditions of going house to house in celebration. As these neighborhood roving bands of singers, well, Christmas carolers, if you will, went door to door performing these traditional tunes, they were rewarded with baked goods and holiday treats. Ukraine, just as most Russian and European governments of the war period, was in upheaval. The government there was trying to promote Ukrainian music in major cultural centers of the West. Touring across Europe and North and South America, a Ukrainian chorus performed more than 1,000 concerts featuring this song. The song was first performed in the United States in October of 1921 to a sold-out audience at Carnegie Hall. It was there that it was heard by famed American composer Peter Wilhowski, who felt the haunting tune reminded him of bells. He adopted the tune for his choir and copyrighted new lyrics we know today that go with this song. In the late 1930s, Wilhowski started using his arrangement in Christmas concerts, the song, now associated with words such as silver bells, caroling, and the line, Merry, 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 Merry Christmas. Though first associated with choirs in the West, the tune has been adopted and adapted for a variety of musical styles and has appeared in movies and Christmas productions since that time. The history of this song in the course of a century is a shadow of how the world Christmas has evolved in those decades since World War One. America's inclusion in the war was largely held off until 1917, but just because the Army had not yet gathered did not mean the United States was not already experiencing change because of the war. In fact, behind the scenes, the United States was deeply invested in supporting the Allied efforts by making materials needed by the machine of war. It affected all the many industries of American productivity. The United States sent raw materials, munitions, and food, while the public and political debates of 1914, 15, and 16 favored neutrality it became clear with the naval blockades of goods between both Great Britain and Germany affecting American ships and passengers that the United States cannot long avoid the conflict. During these years, the public was affected in countless ways, and so too was Christmas. The push to produce more food and to generate more money for the war effort was endless. Instead of Christmas gifts, many were encouraged by Santa dressed as Uncle Sam to buy war bonds. The government set up temporary agencies of all types in ramping up production to never-before-seen efficiency levels. The United States Food Administration led this charge under Herbert Hoover, who taught Americans to economize personal budgets and to grow victory gardens in support of the war. The societal change brought on by World War I affected just about everything. For the first time, more women than ever entered the workforce in roles traditionally held only by men. 
and even children were mobilized through the Boy Scouts to dispense war pamphlets and to sell war bonds. Christmas got caught up in all of the changes. From 1914 forward, Americans were encouraged like never before to shop early and to think of the war effort in all of their purchases. There were shortages of some materials. In fact, the toy industry, which was exploding with innovation during these years, nearly collapsed as manufacturers were encouraged to transition their production lines from consumer products to needed war items. Instead of toy trains, some were making bullets. But for all these changes in technology and production that affected Christmas, something else happened that nobody really saw coming. Between 1917 and 1918, the United States sent more than 2 million service people to war, and the one enemy they never expected to face was a global pandemic that affected more than a third of the world's population. In fact, by the time the war was won in 1918, the very people celebrating in the streets and capitals around the world were infecting themselves in the worst wave of the pandemic. The headlines for Christmas 1918 vacillated between celebrating victory and locking down events in public. The headlines from then are shockingly similar to what we hear today in our news media. Conflicting reports of how bad the pandemic was and how to deal with it was rampant. In Tucson, Arizona, of all places, for example, a newspaper article said this, quote, We never thought much of the masking business. In the first place, if they were an effective preventative, the way they have been worn by most persons makes them useless, and most of the air breathed through the nostrils and the mouth is taken in at the side of the mask, and half the time they are worn on the chin or simply over the mouth. According to all medical theories, the flu germ is so small that it can penetrate the finest cloth, and a mask containing no disinfectant is powerless to stop it." Unquote. That same edition of the newspaper reported on shops being open for Christmas business under the mask order in Tucson, while the little town of Douglas, just a few miles away, was locked down entirely and Christmas trade was completely non-existent on the 13th of December. Events of all kinds were canceled and churches pleaded with citizens to stay home and enjoy a quiet Christmas. Everything was affected, even the charities. In North Bend, Oregon, the town was locked down for Christmas, but Santa was not to be stopped. Instead of his usual appearances at church events, catering to needy children, organizers got Santa an exemption, and wearing a mask, Santa was able to go home by home in an automobile to get the donations out to the families. The pandemic lingered into 1919, but Christmas of that year was festive in ways many knew had to happen. Prohibition had been passed, and come the new year in 1920, alcohol, as all knew it, would be a thing of the past. That meant Christmas 1919, for many people, would be a bender. All of these events and more, including the giant leaps of technology and radio and automobiles and home appliances and any kind of machine that worked on electricity and in music and movies all pointed to a new future and a new Christmas. 
In our next episode, celebrating the Roaring Twenties, we will look at how these elements made huge strides in advancing the celebration of Christmas. Thank you for joining us here on this episode of the Merry Little Podcast. Please join us at the Merry Forms of MyMerryChristmas.com, where we continue to explore Christmas with its glorious history and diverse presence. For all of us at the Merry Forms, this is Jeff Westover wishing you and yours a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.